Father, we recognize this morning that you are a complex God. So help us to trust you in the way that you've revealed yourself to us this morning, that we would look diligently and humbly at your word, that we'd be attentive to how you have shown yourself to be true, that we would consider deeply how it affects our lives and shapes us, how it transforms the way that we relate to you this morning, and how it calls us to be better followers of Christ. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever had an experience in your life that changed a long-held belief that you had? Or at the very least, challenged something that you have believed to be true? I'm sure many of you have had this situation at a very young age after learning the real truth about Santa Claus. Or some of us have maybe seen a documentary or read a recent article that revealed a less than attractive truth about a certain organization that we've long trusted, such as the food industry or the judicial system in our country. For Chris, I'm sure this experience may have come when we were told that only 88% of Taco Bell's beef is actual beef. I cannot even begin to imagine the emotional and psychological trauma that he must have experienced on that day. Many of us have had these kinds of experiences that on one hand we believe something was true and yet we've had an experience that have said quite the opposite. And as we come to the book of Isaiah this morning, we find the nation of Israel in that very situation. The nation has long been divided into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And as the book of Isaiah is being written, the northern kingdom has actually been overtaken by the Assyrian government. And those who have survived the desolation of the country, who have escaped the massacre that has happened throughout most of the land, are now being overtaken and resettled in Assyria. Soon after, the southern kingdom was attacked heavily by Assyria as well. And although the people in the southern kingdom had technically survived the attack, Isaiah is now prophesying to them that a day will soon come when they will actually be defeated and exiled by the Babylonians. As a result, many people within the nation are now losing their faith in the God that they once believed existed to protect them and to provide for them. Even before this political upheaval upheaval and this separation that's taken place, the majority of Israel had actually already begun to stray from God's commandments. They had already become disobedient to his word and started to adopt pagan idols in their worship. In fact, this is actually the reason that Isaiah is prophesying to them in the first place. Israel has completely forsaken God, and as a result, God is exercising his holy judgment on them through the words of Isaiah. But in the midst of this destruction, in the midst of all this judgment, Isaiah in chapters 42 and 43, remind us that God's people, or excuse me, reminds us that God's people have uh, have two truths that they have forgotten. And he is going to remind them of these two truths in these chapters. The first is that God is a warrior. 
God is a warrior. And the second is that God is a provider. So let's start with the first one. God is a warrior. We see this image of God very clearly in Isaiah 42, 13, which describes God as a mighty man. It says that he is a man of war. Now, when you hear the term warrior, I'm sure that there's a lot of different images that come to your mind, many different words and phrases that may come to your mind. Some of you may think of someone who's a brute, who's reckless in his actions. Or you may think of someone that's cold and impersonable. They're not very approachable. They're not concerned about the needs of others. Of course, I'm sure all of us in some way think of a person who's rather dangerous, who's incredibly hostile. A warrior is someone who's interested in committing acts of violence. He seeks to display dominance over those that he interacts with. But if we were to ascribe to God these preconceived notions of what it means to be a warrior, then we'd actually be acting prematurely. Instead, Isaiah, in chapter 42, 13 through 15, provides three helpful adjectives for us that explain more wholly what kind of warrior God truly is. Some of them may be surprising to us. Some of them may not be so surprising, but here they are. The first is we see that God is a zealous warrior. What kind of warrior is God? First, a zealous warrior. We see in the first part of Isaiah 42, 13, it says that the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. Now, if you're unsure of what the word zeal actually means, just picture for a moment the inside of a men's locker room right before a football game. And in that locker room, you're going to see men screaming at the top of their lungs to one another, banging their helmets against one another's helmets, and trying to get each other emotionally prepared for what's about to take place out on the field for the next hour or so. They are rallying around each other. They are emotionally charged up. They are trying to focus all their minds, all their desires on this one singular goal, to beat the team at any cost. Well, this is the kind of imagery that Isaiah is trying to get into our minds as we consider God as a warrior. He is a zealous warrior. There's no hesitation in God's mind here as he approaches his enemies to fight against those that stand before him, against unrighteousness, against injustice, is something that he actually desires to do deeply. He has committed all his emotions to the singular purpose to destroy anything that stands in his way. In Isaiah 59, we actually see an even more vivid image of this zealous God. Starting in verse 17 of the chapter, Isaiah describes God by saying this, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. 
wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And so Isaiah is painting this picture of God literally preparing himself for battle. He is aware of the unrighteousness that exists and he is ready to take it on full steam ahead. Now, let's for just a moment think about our sin in light of what we've just read in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 59. Isaiah is writing these words at the time to a nation that has clearly turned their backs to God. And he's reminding them that God is not passive in his response to sin. He cares about your unrighteousness deeply. He cares about your unfaithfulness deeply. And all of it spurs him on to fight against it actively. When we read these words in Isaiah 42, 13, there should actually be a certain level of fear that starts to creep into our hearts. How are we able to stand before such a holy, righteous, zealous God and not receive absolute condemnation? Well, we'll answer this question in just a moment, but first let's look at the rest of the adjectives that Isaiah uses to describe God as warrior. So first, he's a zealous warrior, but second, God is also a patient warrior. He's a patient warrior. Isaiah in chapter 42 and verse 14 speaks on behalf of God saying, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. In other words, God is eager to defeat his enemies, but he's also strategic in how he defeats his enemies. He doesn't foolishly rush into battle without any kind of plan or purpose guiding his decisions. No, he contemplates, he waits, he is patiently considering how he will defeat those who are his enemies. Now, what does this mean practically for us? Well, in the case of Israel, it means that God has actually allowed for a time certain evils and troubles to overcome his people via the surrounding countries and cultures of the nation. That he has actually allowed the nation of Assyria to completely demolish Israel, to take them into captivity and to exile them. Again, Isaiah is writing to a weak and broken nation here. A large part of Israel has been removed from their homes and land. And the small part that actually remains in the land has suffered greatly at this point from enemy invasions. But God's response to this persecution that Israel has faced is not, oh no, how did we get here? Where did we go wrong? No, his response is, yes, I know what you've been through because I've actually allowed it to happen. I have waited patiently and I have allowed certain things to come into your life that will bring destruction. And in many ways, God interacts with his church the same today. The Christian life is not one that is immune to the darkness of this world. 
In fact, if we gave time for it this morning, I'm sure all of us in this room who claim to know Christ as our Savior could one by one come up on this stage and explain to each other how in some ways brokenness has still touched their lives, whether in the past or the present. The Christian life is, is not one that is immune to brokenness. So how is this possible? How can we claim Christ as Savior, victor over sin, and yet somehow we're still suffering from the sin of the world, that we're still dealing with brokenness? Well, the simple answer is because God in his sovereignty has allowed certain evil to exist in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, of course, there's much more that could be said about this topic. And, and so if you have any questions, Chris eagerly awaits your emails. Uh, feel free to ask him anything that you want this week. That's a joke. Don't actually do that. Email Dustin. Um, no, but I, I do just want to speak on this for, for just a moment more and, and briefly say this. When we hear that God allows evil to exist in our lives, our initial reaction should not be one of confusion. It should not be one of frustration. It should actually be a response of encouragement. We should actually be encouraged when we hear that God allows evil in our lives. Why should we be encouraged? Because if God allows evil in our lives, then it actually confirms in our hearts and minds that God is the one who is in control. Imagine with me for just a moment if the opposite was true. If God was not the one allowing evil, and yet evil was still present in our lives today. What would this mean? It would mean that whenever evil does present itself in our lives, that God has either been outsmarted or overpowered by Satan. Okay, do you, do you see how I'm getting there? If we deny that God allows evil, then we actually weaken his sovereignty and his power. And not only that, but we lose any hope that we once had when we have experienced trials because God is no longer in control of the bad things that happen in our lives. He has actually been overpowered and overruled by some other kind of force who is now causing evil to happen. And so we have to understand here that God is a patient warrior and in his patience, he actually allows for certain trials to exist in our lives. So we've seen that God is zealous, he is patient, and finally Isaiah explains that God is a mighty warrior. He is a mighty warrior. Starting in the last half of verse 14, God proclaims, now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. So what does this passage tell us about God? It tells us that he is patient, but he is not passive. Let's not confuse the two this morning. He is patient, but he is not passive. God does not carelessly sit on his throne today, unconcerned about the atrocities that are happening in this world. 
He waits to attack his enemies, yes, but not because he doesn't care. It's because that when he attacks, he wants his might to be displayed fully and absolutely. And how is God's might displayed? Look at some of the examples that Isaiah offers to us in verse 15 of chapter 42. Just to paraphrase briefly, he he initially says that God will level mountains and hills. This is one of the ways that God displays his might. He levels mountains and hills. Have you ever seen a mountain get leveled? I'm not asking you, have you ever seen someone blow a hole in the side of the mountain? I'm asking, have you ever seen a mountain get dissolved into thin air? The closest that I have come is watching my college roommate absolutely decimate a mountain of nachos and cheese, at the base of which were three very soggy, very salty pieces of pizza. Okay? And actually, for the next 24 hours, he was throwing up. So who actually conquered who in that situation? You know? The the picture that Isaiah presents here about God's might is one that is absolute. There There is nothing that can stand in his way. Now, let's not get so caught up in what Isaiah is literally saying here that we miss the purpose behind what he is saying. Isaiah is not giving us an exhaustive list of ways in which God is going to display his might and therefore defeat his enemies. No, the purpose of Isaiah's words in verse 15 is not to describe what God will do literally, but to explain what God can do eternally. Let me say that again. The purpose of Isaiah's words here in verse 15 is not to describe what God will do literally, but to explain what God can do eternally. Now, this is important for us to understand this morning because if Isaiah 42.15 provides a literal description or list of what God's actions are going to be, then all of us in this room should actually be able to say, well, as far as I know, no mountains have been leveled, everyone is still eating vegetables in the world, and no one is honeymooning on islands that used to be rivers. Therefore, I guess I don't need to trust in God. What he said was going to come to fruition has not come to fruition. Therefore, he is not trustworthy. That's what could be said if we actually interpret Isaiah 42.15 literally word by word. But the purpose of this verse is not to describe literally what God will do, but to explain what God can do. And the reason that we need to make this distinction this morning The reason that I emphasize it so clearly to us and repeat it over and over again is because our faith in God should not be dependent on what God does. It should be dependent on who God is. God may choose to actually make mountains disappear. He may choose to actually cause rivers to dry up. But my faith in him is not dependent on on what he actually does, on if any of these things are going to happen. My faith and your faith is dependent on the fact that God is who he says he is. So who does God say he is in verse 15? He says that he is 
almighty. He is all-powerful. There is nothing that can stand between God and the accomplishment of his will. This is the God who Isaiah wants us to understand this morning. And I, so I ask you, is this your view of God? That when you think about God, do you think of an all-powerful, almighty God who can absolutely destroy anything that stands between him and his will, whatever that may be in the situation? Is this how you consider the Lord who you call the Savior of your life? If it's not, just let me encourage you, look beyond your circumstances this morning. Look beyond your personal experiences and draw near to the truths of God's word that we see here in Isaiah. So we've seen that God is a zealous warrior. He is a patient warrior and he is a mighty warrior, able and ready to defeat anything that stands in his way. But the question still remains, how do we avoid becoming the recipients of God's wrath in light of our sinfulness. So far, everything that we've learned about God in Isaiah 42 is actually a bad thing for us. He has just described that he is zealous, he is ready and able to destroy sinners, that he is absolutely unrelenting when it comes to the unrighteousness that exists in the world. He will not allow it to dominate And so considering all that and considering that we are actually sinners, how do we look at God who is presented to us in this way in Isaiah 42 and and yet in some way rejoice that this is true about him? Well, we see the answer in Isaiah 43.1. It says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. In other words, God is not only a warrior who brings judgment on sinners, but he's also a provider, offering redemption to those who would otherwise be condemned. And this is our second point this morning, that God is not only a warrior He is also a provider. Notice with me that the transformation that seems to take place between chapters 42 and 43 of Isaiah. In 42.15, God is seen destroying creation. Again, he is leveling mountains. He is drying up rivers. He is removing any kind of sustenance that his enemies had. And yet in 43.1, God is now called the creator the giver of life. He is not destroying creation. He is actually bringing creation into existence. In 42.13, God is seen as a judge. He is condemning sinners for their unrighteousness. He is not willing to accept injustice. And But in 43.1, God is now a redeemer of the guilty, declaring them innocent. You see, on every level, the provision of God is now influencing how he exercises his role as a warrior. And so there are just two questions that I want us to think about this morning 
as we think about God as a provider. First, how does God provide for us? And second, why does God provide for us? How does God provide for us? And why does God provide for us? So the first question, how does God provide for us? First, he provides by protecting us. By protecting us. Look at Isaiah 43, 2. It says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. In other words, God is aware of the trials we face in this life. He sees us walking through the fire. He recognizes that we are being overcome by the waters. This confirms what we've already concluded in Isaiah 42, 14, that God in his sovereignty allows suffering to exist in the Christian life. But now in his provision, God not only is aware of our suffering, he offers protection in our suffering. And notice that I said in our suffering, not from our suffering. God does not protect us from our suffering. It doesn't say that when the waters pass through, I will, I will not allow that to happen anymore. That I will not cause fires to exist in your life. No, it says when you go through the waters, when you go through the fire, I will not allow it to consume you. You will not be burned. It is not that suffering is removed from our lives, but it is in the midst of this suffering, God has promised to protect us. The will of God is not that we'd be completely without trials in this life. It is that way we would look to him as our provider and our protector who knows our needs and fulfills them in the midst of our suffering. God not only protects, protects us in our suffering, though, he also protects us from his own wrath against sin. And this is actually probably the greatest way that we see God's protection in our lives, that on one level, he actually protects us against himself. Compare Isaiah 43.2 to Isaiah 42.15, and you'll notice that in both accounts, God is using the example of creation to display his power and control over the universe. In 42.15, God is describing the power that he brings against natural elements in order to convey his judgment of unrighteousness. But then in 43.2, God now describes the power that he brings against natural elements in order to convey his protection of those who were considered unrighteous. That is the power that was once used for our destruction, the power that's described in Isaiah 42, is now being redirected and reworked in Isaiah 43 so that it may be used for our protection. Now, before we go any further, I want us to understand something that I think is very important in this passage. And that is, between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43, the character of God has not changed. In Isaiah 42, we see a picture of a wrathful, vengeful God. And in Isaiah 43, we see a picture of a wrathful, vengeful God. God's promise in Isaiah 43, too, is not that he will cease being wrathful and vengeful. 
His promise is that he will cease being wrathful and vengeful to his people. In other words, who God is does not change, but how he relates to us does. Now, how is this change accomplished? How is it that God's relationship with us actually changes and is transformed? Well, without thinking too deeply or greatly, I'm sure that most of us in this room could scream out the good old safe Sunday answer, Sunday school answer of Jesus. And in this case, the safe answer is actually the right answer. Congratulations. This is the significance of the cross. How is it that God is able to relate to us in a completely new way, spare us from his wrath? The answer is Jesus. That the cross actually acts as a receptacle for God's wrath so that we might be spared from the punishment that we rightly deserved. You see, we tend to think of the cross in very physical terms. Jesus was beaten and humiliated physically. He was tortured. He wore a crown of thorns upon his head. All of these are terrible, painful things. Do not get me wrong. I am not denying that. But the true suffering of the cross happened not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. Because Jesus not only received physical suffering, but he actually bore the wrath of God on his shoulders for the sake of sinners. He experienced absolute separation from the Father, that God the Father actually turned his face on the Son because of the sin that was now bearing down on Christ as he died on the cross. Why? So that justice could be served in order that God might protect us from himself and welcome us instead as citizens of his kingdom. So how does God provide for us? First, he protects us. Second, he preserves us. At the time that Isaiah is being written, much of Israel has been scattered geographically and What remains of the nation will eventually be exiled to Babylon. But in the midst of all this separation and pulling apart, God offers this promise in Isaiah 43.5. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. What is it that God is actually saying here? What man has tried to divide and dissolve, God has now promised to reunite and strengthen. This promise is just as true for the church today as it was for Israel at the time of Isaiah's prophecy. I look at the condition of the church today and I see many different things. I see healthy churches and I see unhealthy churches. I see good leaders and I see poor leaders. I see people who are broken and I see people who are receiving healing. But what encourages me most as I look across the vast array of churches and experiences is that God has promised to preserve the church until his return. There is absolutely no power or error so great that would somehow disband the church. Its existence is as sure as God's promise. Its preservation depends solely on the eternal nature of God. The Lord does not just protect us. He preserves us until the end. So how does God provide us, provide for us? He protects us. He preserves us. But now why 
does God provide for us? Why does God do what he does on our behalf? Well, we find the answer stated very clearly in verse 7 of chapter 43. It says, Everyone who is called by not my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why does God provide for us? So that he may receive glory. In fact, this is God's purpose for all of creation, for everything that he does. He does all that he does. He achieves all that he achieves so that he may receive glory. If God were to wear a jersey, it would not have your name on the front of it. God is not on Team Israel or Team Beals or Team Johnson or Team Smith or anybody else. He is on Team God. All that he does in the universe, he does, not, or he does to point back to himself. Friends, there is a false gospel that is growing more and more popular in our churches And it preaches a message that says God is ultimately concerned with your comfort and your happiness. That cannot be farther from the message of the Bible. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 says this, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. There are a lot of big words and phrases that are crammed into that one sentence. So let me just break it down for us. It simply says this, God saved us because he wanted to, and he wanted to because he knew it would bring him glory. That is why God does what he does. Now, why is it so important that we understand this reality this morning? Because if we begin to believe that God has saved us for some other reason outside of his own glory, then we will start to convince ourselves that God has chosen to save us because of something that we have done to make us more attractive or more worthy of the gospel. If it were not for God's glory, friends, we would not be saved. We need to understand that this morning. If it were not for God's glory being revealed through our salvation, then God would not be saving us. There is nothing that would make us worthy of God's salvation other than our ability to confirm his glory, which is displayed so clearly throughout the story of redemption. God is a provider, yes, but he provides for us so that he may receive the glory do his name. Now, let me just conclude by saying this. If God is truly a warrior who is zealous and patient and mighty, and if he is a provider who protects us for the sake of his own glory, then we can rest in God. We can rest in God. If God is a warrior, there is no enemy we will ever face that God cannot destroy. And if God is a provider, there is no need that we could ever have that cannot be met in Jesus fully. And let me just encourage you this morning, do not allow one of these characteristics of God to somehow become more comforting or attractive to you. Resist that temptation today. Both of these aspects, that God is a warrior and that God is a provider, are equally essential to our faith. 
If God is only a warrior, then we are left with nothing to look forward to but his wrath and condemnation. But if God is only a provider, we are saved from his wrath, but not from sin because it hasn't been defeated. To recognize one of these attributes without the other produces a God that is overly simple, disappointing, and easily rejected. These two characteristics are dependent on the existence of the other. So let's rest in both of those truths today. God is fighting your battles and has declared you righteous in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's praise the Lord for that this morning. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are not a simple God, that you are complex and multifaceted, and yet in your grace and your mercy, you have still revealed yourself to us that we might seek to understand you. Father, I pray that we would understand what you've said to us this morning, that you are not just a warrior, you are not just a provider, you are a providing warrior. You are a fighting provider. May we rest in both of those truths this morning and be encouraged by them as we now praise you in song. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.